Welcome to Santa Barbara Talks with Josh Molina, and this is such a pleasure. I really, really am looking forward to this conversation with Santa Barbara County District Attorney Joyce Dudley. Joyce, how are you doing today? Hey, Josh, great question, and uh, <laughs> I, I'm loving the first question. I, I'm doing really well today. It was one of those really good days. Went for a hike this morning with Council on Alcoholism and Drug Abuse, went to the Ukrainian rally. And um, now I'm ready for some questions from you. Good day. Yeah, well, well um, I, I appreciate you sharing some time to talk. Obviously, this is a really big moment. This is a very newsy time for you. And I want you to talk about that. You announced late last week that you would not be seeking re-election as district yep. attorney. Uh, you will um, have served 12 years. Um, in that role. And, um, you know, you have a stellar reputation and, you know, everyone, you know, knows of you and respects you and has a really high opinion of you. And, and so you deciding that you're going to not run again is, is very big news. So let's start there, Joyce. Uh, why now? Um, you know, why not run again? Just talk to us a little bit about the timing. Okay, well, first of all, thank you for your very kind comments. And if they're true, how great to leave while you have a stellar reputation and while you're still on top. Yeah. Now's the best time for me to leave. First of all, the office is in great shape. The people we have working in the district attorney's office now are the best in the, what, 32 years I've worked there. I have great faith in the office. I would not, I would, excuse me, they say that way, that way around. I was starting to say I would not retire, but I would seek another four years where John Savernock not willing to run. Um, I read a book when I was um, campaigning a million years ago, and it was from good to great, because just in case I won the campaign, and I was the district attorney, I read several books on leadership. One of the things that from good to great said was your organization will be judged one year after you leave. That's your legacy. And so I've been thinking about succession planning over the last several years. And I believe with John Savernock as a district attorney, that one year from now, I can sit back and, and smile and feel like, yes, the organization was great and solid and kept moving in that direction. So I want to talk to you about, about John Savernock a little bit later. I want to sort of get okay. to sort of your thought process in terms of your announcement and the timing. But let's sure. talk about your 12 years. What do you see as sort of the the legacy uh, uh, changes that you made in the district attorney's office, what, what are you most proud of? Um, I think we'd have to start with the very first thing I said, um, assembling great staff. Um, I think the fact that in every division of our office, there are great prosecutors, investigators, victim witness advocates, support staff, IT staff, and it's the heart of the organization. Most of our budget is payroll. And that's where we've invested in folks. And then the task force. I've always been a prevention oriented person. So um, I started the human trafficking task force, the arson task force, the task force on IV safe, um, the environmental task force, and the animal abuse task force. Some of these lasted for a short amount of time. Actually, it was only the animal abuse task force that lasted for a short amount of time but it brought people's awareness to the nexus between animal abuse and human abuse. Um, I brought back truancy. Truancy was gone and we were able to get truancy back in the office. 
I brought volunteerism into the office. We had several really great district deputy district attorneys who retired. We were struggling at that point when I first took office with our budget. I called them up and I said, I can't pay you. We don't have the money in our budget, but I have cases that need your expertise. Would you volunteer and come back? And to my surprise and absolute delight, they did. So I had senior deputy district attorneys, Ron Zonin, Vicki Johnson, Jim Krieger, Gordon Ockenkloss, who came back into the office, even though they weren't being paid to do the work they were already great at. Um, and then our prosecution of very complex cases, certainly the IV massacre. Now, there was no prosecution in that one, but all the investigation and, and legal talent. That night of the IV massacre, I sent in eight people to Isla Vista um, to help in a variety of ways. Uh, the MS-13 cases, one going on in South County, one going on in North County. So many heartbreaking multiple family murder cases. The last one we just finished was Pierre Habash, but there were three others where entire families are wiped out. Very proud of the plain oil spill case. First time that we were able to get a felony. Any, I think in the state of California, the first time any district attorney's office got a felony against an oil company. And a plethora of environmental cases and civil cases. You see the press releases on those all the time. I doubled the staff in that environmental and civil division of the district attorney's office so that, again, we can prevent bad things from happening in our community. So I think those are probably the top things I think about when I think what am I most proud of? Mm -hmm. Let's, you know, you mentioned a lot there. Let's talk a little bit about human trafficking. Uh, sure. Obviously, people perceive Santa Barbara as a paradise, and in many ways it is. Right. Uh, but we're also, uh, we, we also have major issues as it relates to mm -hmm. certain types of crime. And I remember in my reporting at some point, Santa Barbara County being a uh, very high on the list of places where uh, people, uh, you know, traffic uh, individuals, you know, I think mostly North County, but happens throughout the county. Can you talk about the problem and how bad it is and how much the county has done in terms of trying to crack down on this, this behavior? Yeah, Josh, thanks for asking about that. My work in human trafficking started, I don't know, at least 20 years ago, when I was the prosecutor, um, and I prosecuted pimps. Now, at first, when I was prosecuting pimps, what would happen is there'd be um, either websites or actual houses of prostitution, and they would, I'd work with law enforcement in terms of investigation. Then eventually, they would go into the location, go into the arrest, and I would immediately give all of the prostitutes immunity. We would say, look, we perceive you as victims, and we want to help you back into our community and, and help you feel safe. And, but you are gonna to need to testify against your pimps. And that worked. I had, I don't know if you remember these cases, but there was the Mangan case and what was called the College Cuties case. And all of them, I believe, went to trial. And um, each time we were successful, it was heartbreaking to put the prostitutes on the stand, but they understood and we were able to get them services. So we're moving along and we're being successful in eradicating this. And then all of a sudden they hit, they hit a massage parlor and in the massage and the massage parlor, they talked to the woman who was giving the massage ultimately who was a prostitute. 
And they offered her the same immunity we've been offering everybody. And she said, no, she would not testify. And it was something, this was, again, probably around 20 years ago. No, no, we're not going to prosecute you. Everything's going to be okay. We just need you to, pro- to testify against your pimp. And she said, you don't understand. If I testify against my pimp, then my family back in, I don't remember if it was China or Thailand, um, will be killed and beaten. And it was, what? What? And really, that was the first time, Josh, I ever heard of that, that if, if she testified against her pimp, that her family members would suffer. And then we began to understand what went on. And it was heartbreaking. Something like this. People would go to places like China and Thailand, and they would find poor families with beautiful young daughters. And they would say, hey, you know, we think we can give you the best, your, your daughters, the best of all possible lives in America. And they would say, we don't have the money to send them to America. No problem. I will lend you the money. And then we will give her a job in a restaurant and she'll pay, be able to pay me back, ultimately get her citizenship and maybe even bring you over. Now, what loving parent? I mean, as you know, my great grandparents sent my grandfather to America with the hope of bringing them over. So they were doing the same thing. Well, it turned out those people were, that were recruiting them were despicable. First, they'd bring them here. And the pattern went something like this. They'd be working in a Chinese restaurant. And they'd be working incredible hours, 12 hours a day, seven days a week. And they would continuously say, you know, if I made enough money, no, 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 no. And then they'd say, but we could, you can finish up your whole debt if you just do this. If you just, and then it would be minor acts of sexual, of um, minor acts of sex with them. Um, uh, we don't like, to, I don't like to use the word Johns. Um, so purchasers, maybe we'll call them minor acts of purchasers. And then it became more and more. And still they kept this up. And then they said, if you leave, we know your parents, we gave them the money. We're going to go back and kill the family. So they would stay. And that was the first time I began to understand human trafficking. This particular woman who first disclosed this to a detective there she said, okay, um, arrest me. Do not let me go. But before you arrest me, you have to beat me up. And the detective said, I can't beat you up. And she said, no, if my pimp's outside. He sees us walking out. He knows I've been in here with a half hour with you. If I don't come up beaten up, then he's going to hurt my family. So the detective refused to beat her up. And then she did something, Josh, I will never forget as long as I live. As they were leaving, she came upon a pole. And she, boom, 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 smacked her head against the pole, causing bleeding all over her face. And then she felt safe going out to the car and being arrested. And then I realized this is a problem that is something that is so beyond my awareness then. And then I began to learn everything I could about human trafficking and working with the federal government. And then at first, it was still in my mind, we're bringing people from another country here and we're trafficking them. And then a whole nother wave came in, and that's the wave we're at today. We have people in Santa Barbara County, residents of Santa Barbara County, who become prostitutes owned by pimps. Initially, many of them come because they've been sexually assaulted, and then um, they're given drugs. They become drug addicts, so they start to do it for the drugs. Then some of them do it because they're from terrible homes, 
and they will do anything to get out of the home. And this person offers them love and security. Those are called the Romeo pimps. And, and others do it because nobody really cares about them and there's no other place to go, which is break your heart material. Now, that's where we are now. And um, I pulled some statistics for you to give you a sense of this. So we started working on the task force came, um, we started around 2017. So between 2017 and 2021, um, there were 207 survivors. We now use the term survivors as compared to prostitutes because we view them as survivors. 91% was sex trafficked, 97% female, 29% 17 or younger, 33% between 18 and 24. And here's the part that I think will shock you, but maybe not. I know you've done some work on this. 43% of them were Santa Barbara County residents. Mm -hmm. Now, there are 7,084 units of service offered. And the top five were case manager referral to community services, criminal justice system-based victim advocacy, financial system, emotional and moral support, and personal items, food, clothing, hygiene. They were, their whole life was tied in to the person who was trafficking them. We've done 232 investigations with law enforcement agencies, be them local or federal. 75 potential traffickers were identified, 45 criminally charged with human trafficking, pimping, or pandering, and 22 pled guilty for human trafficking, pimping, or pandering. So that's the, that's the statistics and that's the condition that we're in with human trafficking. Your question, you started with this, is why Santa Barbara? You, and it's exactly because it is paradise, Josh, you're right. What's happening is the 101 is a major corridor. This is an affluent area. And when we talk to the survivors, they tell us that they were pimped into this area because of those things. Um, and it, it, it's just shocking to imagine that, but it is. Um, so what happened is we are in a position, we applied for grants and we applied for them at the sheriff's department. And so we were able to start working up these cases. We hired someone. So the Santa Barbara County attorney's office is the only agency in our county that has someone who's focused on human trafficking. Um, we work with local law enforcement, state and federal, nonprofits, religious leaders, county agencies, and collectively by communicating well, by understanding what it is we're dealing with, we've made a difference. Oh yeah, those statistics are just mind-blowing, you know, when you break it down that way and you, you, you see the, the proportion, the size of the problem. Um, when you mentioned Santa Barbara County residents, okay, um, what, who are we talking about? You know, when, when I, you know, as a reporter, you get these press releases sometimes, you see it's some like rundown hotel somewhere where there's like an undercover sting and they, you know, the men are arrested. And like, when I think of trafficking, I sort of think of like, that's where it happens. Um, when we talk about residents, who, what kind of residents, who are we talking about? Are these, well, I don't want to, yeah, you tell me. Sounds, so you're, you're right, Josh, they end up in those hotels that you're talking about. And we've done big campaigns with talking to hotel managers, front desk people. We put up signs everywhere about this. Um, so typically it would be the child that we can talk more about in a little bit in terms of prevention. 
The child that never quite fit in would be your typical way of doing this. So school wasn't working for them. So they're truant. The child who would experiment with drugs, the child whose parents were either not involved with them or abusive uh, or drug addicts themselves, and they would start running away from home. They might get picked up by a pimp. Again, perhaps a kind of Romeo kind of pimp. Come with me. I'll take care of you. I'll love you. Uh, drug addicts, they get them addicted to meth and say, you know, you can, I know that great feeling you get from meth, stick with me and I'll give you constant meth. And so those are the ones in our county. One of the statistics that shocked me when I started learning about this was most survivors, and again, I use that term, these are people who became prostitutes, we're calling them survivors, we get to know them. Um, Most of them were sexually assaulted by about the age of 11. And those are Santa Barbara County residents. Um, Many of them were being trafficked as early as 12 and 13. So those are the folks. And yeah, they stay, they stay in hotels and you you can get, you know, used to be on the internet that you would make these connections. It's not streetwalkers and the pimp runs the ad, the pimp organizes the whole thing, the trafficker, and these are our victims. Um, let's talk a little bit about this this issue and transition into the broader conversation about criminal justice. I read in Newshawk uh, your interview with Tom Bolton about sort of some of the reasons why you're leaving. Okay, you know you talked about now's a great time. You've built up a great staff. Uh, you have somebody who you believe is prepared and ready to step into your shoes. You've also expressed on Jerry's show uh, in that article, uh, some feelings about the current state of criminal justice and a focus shifting from, um, you know, prosecuting the people who commit the crimes in the most serious way uh, to a different way of approaching it. And I want you to frame that conversation but um, talk to me a little bit about what's happening in your industry that is also causing you to maybe think you don't want to do this anymore. Great question. I think what happened with Jerry was that he asked me, when did I first think about retirement? When, or again, not running. When did, when did I first think that I wasn't going to run for, for a fourth term? And I think I, I described it was during all of the things that you're describing. Um, when I was in a, in a board of supervisors budget hearing, and suddenly the things that had always mattered, crime victims, um, ensuring that somebody who'd hurt victims couldn't hurt them again, either, either through you know criminalization, in custody, treatment, whatever. Suddenly the conversation changed and the emphasis changed and the concern became in my mind, more on the perpetrator and less on the victim. And that was because I have have had to look into the eyes of victims for 32 years. I've seen people who are alive, but every suggestion tells me that they've died inside. And that's as a result of somebody perpetrating a crime. Now, I don't think we can arrest away our problems. I've never been that kind of person. But I do think people have to be held accountable for their behavior. And I began to see that shift. And however, I am seeing the pendulum go the other way now. I believe it was the New York City, the new New York City mayor who said, um, if you have a bumper sticker that says defund the police, you're in the wrong city. 
you know, we're seeing a lot more people now. And, and in part, it was the reaction to a lot of extremely liberal district attorneys coming into communities like Los Angeles. And the communities are no longer as safe as they were. And they're seeing criminals running rampant you know, Prop 47 and not and non-arrests for people who were committing thefts under the under $950. That environment was happening more then, but I think now the community is aware and all of a sudden you have President Biden in his presidential State of the Union address talking about what a bad idea defunding the police are. That's not what people were saying a year ago. Yeah. So I think there was an awareness. My feeling when I first considered leaving the office was during the height of that, but thankfully I'm seeing the shift back the other way. Yeah, and so let's talk about that conversation. Uh, obviously defund the police is the wrong phrase and that's the one that everybody used and that's the one that you know, conservatives and people will say, it's ridiculous, how can you defund the police? We need law enforcement. And really what that movement was talking about was a. Uh, a readjustment of funds so that we could spend funds on prevention or crimes that are spending money on preventing the crime as opposed to just arrests. And so the terminology was wrong. In what areas do you see sort of that conversation being a legitimate one when we talk about reimagining law enforcement? Um, if it's not and no one ever said take all the money away, right? But that was the perception they got out of there. But if it's if it's where do you see reimagining law enforcement? In what ways can it help to sort of keep people out of prison who may be not serious, you know, criminals, but end up there anyway? I I, I love that term. I don't think I've heard it before, Josh. Reimagining because that's exactly what we need to do. Mm -hmm. um, Let's go to the term defunding just for a moment. We need to increase funding for law enforcement because what we have is tremendous recruitment and retention problems now in law enforcement. Every single, and I've never seen this, every law enforcement agency in Santa Barbara County is having trouble with recruitment and retention. The Santa Barbara Police Department, which is, has always been considered across the, really the state, to be an excellent program is down. I think it's around 15 officers. Yeah. Sheriff's Department, I heard at 1.50. CHP, I mean, CHP has never had this issue. So we need to increase funding for police, but be very clear what that's about. We also need to increase standards and we also need to increase training. So we should decide, being a law enforcement officer, such a critically important job that we want people with the best education with the best psychological profile. So in order to recruit that, we're going to have to pay for that. And then once they're law enforcement officers, we have to continue training them, which means backfilling for law enforcement agencies to get them to training and making sure the training is effective. Um, about six years ago, Governor Brown asked me to be on the um, post commission, which is police officer standards and training. Two years later, he made me the chair of that commission, and I've been the chair ever since. And um, Governor Newsom just reappointed me as a commissioner and his chair. What I've spent the last several years looking at and hopefully leading is those kinds of efforts. Um, I'll give you an example of, of one. Um, after the George Floyd murder, um, very next session, 
we came together and I was the deciding vote in disallowing the teaching of the carotid restraint. And that was a big change because several law enforcement agencies said, wait a minute, we need that. And my response was, you have a lot of tools in your tool belt, and I want you to focus on the psychological ones rather than that one. And we voted it. But for me, so much of what we're dealing with on the streets uh, are people with, who are addicts and people who are dealing with mental illness. And so my favorite project to give more funding to is the co-response teams. Makes perfect sense. Historically, somebody who is going through a mental health crisis, you know, there's fear in the part of their loved ones, there's fear in the part of the community members. They call 911, cops come at them. How scary is that? You're already psychologically deranged and all of a sudden you have people with guns coming at you. So you're going to be defensive, you're going to be reactive. And how's that going to end before co-response teams? It ended more often with them being in custody. That's the last place someone with mental health issues needs to be. They need help. So now with the co-response team, I think the, the arrest rate of the actual people who've come to the co-response team is down to 3%. Oh, my God. From, from that one number to another, just because we took the time to see who's, who's the, the alleged perpetrator, who's the suspect, do we have any information on their mental health? And if so, let's send a co-response team. So I think that's critically important. But for me, the prevention part has always been about really preventing from within. What would that mean? Um, as you know, I have, I, I came from, I was the director of Head Start when I started law school, Head Start for Santa Barbara County. I had a master's degree in early childhood education and a master's in educational administration. And as I've said many times, I did more to prevent crime when I was the Head Start director than in my 32 years as a prosecutor. I say that because I believe very strongly that we need excellent prenatal care. At-risk children need to, at-risk infants, when they come home, they need someone in the home helping the mom. One of the cases I prosecuted, Josh, early in my career was a meth addict mother who gave birth to her child, was allowed to take that child home, and that child almost starved to death, screaming, almost starved to death because it was more important for her to connect to get her meth than it was to feed her child. That's how intense addictions can be. So, you know, clearly we needed to get that help in there. So let's, you know, we should have been in that home with that woman. We already knew that she was a meth addict because when she, her blood was full of meth when she gave birth. We should be in those at-risk homes and making sure they're getting love and the care they need and the support. She should have been in drug treatment. The baby should have been in foster care until she got there. So many things should have happened, but instead that baby almost died. Um, in terms of preschool education, it, it seems like a jump, it's not. When you arrive in school at age five, if you don't feel like you belong, and you don't feel connected, then all of a sudden you think you don't have a sense of hope. And when you don't have that sense of hope, you don't feel like you belong. So some kids come into kindergarten knowing their colors, their letters, and they can feel like a success. Others, because their parents didn't have the money in most cases to send their kids to preschool, come in and they already feel left out. That continues and continues. 70% of the people in prison 
didn't graduate high school. So if we had invested so much in that prenatal care, home visits, preschool, special, and then the testing, we should be in there testing, not just for the physical that you need before you go to preschool or kindergarten, but the mental health. We should get the kids the help they need when they're still munchkins, special, special education, people with dyslexia, people with all kinds of learning disabilities. Let's get them to them when they're five so they feel like a part of school. So when I think about funding and redo, I think about spending more money in those directions, which is not to say there isn't a place for diversion and all the other things you'll likely ask me about. But I think your biggest bang for the buck is going to be on prevention with early childhood. Yeah, no, and I don't disagree with you there. And I don't think a lot of people would um, that the earlier in the system that you can yeah. intervene and help, uh, the bigger the payoff it is going to be. Um, I know with my first kid, we had a first five come to our house and talk to my wife, told me to leave, like, want to talk to, you know, uh, and, you know, they asked all kinds of questions about the home, the relationship, you know, are you safe, all, you know, all that stuff. My second child, they never came. I don't know what happened. Um, I don't know if there was a difference. I guess maybe they assume, <laughs> I don't know, but I do know that certainly those kind of checks, they matter because if somebody is feeling a little bit uh, like they have nowhere else to turn, here's a person who says, hey, we're available at any point to do that. Um, you know, everything you said makes sense. Um, as a reporter, you know, I cover school district, okay? And, and you hear high school students, and you may have followed this, you know, the school, Santa Barbara Unified School District almost overnight voted to remove the, uh, the sheriff's deputy on campus because many young people, who at least, you know, who had testified, um, said they don't feel safe around law enforcement. Uh, they don't feel as though they um, can be, that they're treated the same, that people of color feel as though they're singled out, whereas other people don't have that interaction with that deputy. And this is part of the national conversation. And I know things here are, are not as bad, you know, as other places. But if you're one of those people who does experience that, it doesn't matter. It is just as bad to you. Yes. How do we, I mean... I guess my question is, we've got a whole generation, Joyce, growing up, believing that law enforcement is targeting people of color. We have iPhones that people record and you can go right, you, you could go on YouTube right now mm -hmm. and you can find all sorts of examples of, of law enforcement singling out people of color. Um, and that's just a video, but that's, you know, right. what, what you would see. We have a whole generation growing up who's saying, defund the police. Mm -hmm. We don't feel safe. Our prisons and our jails are full of people of color. They're full of, you know, um, Hispanics, Latinos, uh, Blacks, uh, people of color. And, and it's uh, disproportionate to the overall population. Mm -hmm. So can you talk about, like, how do you convince them? How do you convince them that when they hear you talk, that that when they, and they hear you say, we need more funding for law enforcement. How, how do you make that, that case to them and help understand like it's that perspective is going to make things better. That's going to somehow help the situation they're experiencing. Well, as you know, the only way you change is if you meet people where they are. And I can tell you that I think they have been discriminated against. I think people of color are treated differently. 
Um, I think historically that's the way it is in every system. I'll give you an example of it. Um, Jackie Lacey is, is my best friend. She was the district attorney of Los Angeles and she's black. Um, when she travels on an airplane, because of the number of threats she's gotten, she has to travel with two detectives. When detect and they're armed, they come onto the plane and there's a procedure. They, um, they first of all, fill out all the forms, then they introduce themselves to the pilot and then they go, they take Jackie on the plane. So um, one of the flight attendants, as Jackie is walking behind the two obviously looking investigators, said, what's she in for? What's she in for? The only reason, Josh, they asked that question is she was black. And had it been me, they wouldn't have said what she's in for. So when we talk about people of color being treated differently by law enforcement, I think people of color are treated differently by across the board in our community. Now where it gets dangerous, now in that case, it hurt her feelings. But when it gets dangerous is when it's someone who can take away your liberty. And I think that the, the people of color in Santa Barbara High School who felt that way have witnessed, have personally experienced um, racial profiling have witnessed it on the street and are legitimately fearful. So when I say meet people where they are, don't, don't tell them that it's not true. Of course it's true. And now let's fix it. You know, let's make sure law enforcement officers gain that sensitivity. That's part of what we do at Post. And no matter how many people tell them, no, 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 no. If they experienced it, if they saw it, if they perceived it that way, it's not gonna change. So law enforcement has to change in terms of the efforts they make so that people feel safer. Yeah. Okay, and one more question on this topic um, of diversity and inclusion, your staffing, okay? Um, there, there are many people who say, we need teachers, we need leaders, we need people in power and authority to look like the community they represent. So right. in other words, we can do all this stuff and we can, we can talk about inclusion and we can talk about equity and we can talk about socio, uh, you know, emotional health awareness and mental health awareness. But if we still look up and we still see the people in charge and, and I don't want to discriminate against anyone, but, you know, being white, uh, you know, being men, obviously not in your case, but, but if that's still who's predominantly making the choices, how do those people ever feel like I belong? Okay. Um, so in your office, the district attorney's office, how do you approach staffing and diversity and reflecting the community that you are representing? First of all, I think they're right. Mm -hmm. I think that it's that all that is true. Um, Christy Stanley was a district attorney for a short amount of time, but I, I'm, you know, the first female district attorneys ever served a term. And now I'm finishing my three terms. So we start right at the top with first woman DA to complete terms um, ever in the history of the Santa Barbara District Attorney's Office. It's been around forever. I believe that what you're saying is true. I also have changed things radically. First, from my perspective, long before I was on the Post Commission, I co-created the curriculum and taught um, the dangers of racial profiling and hate crimes. So while I was a Deputy District Attorney, I was working on that curriculum and going around to agencies across 
the state and teaching the dangers of road profiling. Most classes for law enforcement officers only take one day. We found it took not just one day, not just two days, but three days to break through to get law enforcement officers to understand what racial profiling is and the dangers of it. By day three, they got it. Um, what topic takes three days to teach? You have to really get to someone's core. And one of the things I would talk about is being unjustly accused. Every law, When I'd say to a class of law enforcement officers, how many of you ever felt unjustly accused? They raised their hand. And I said, so when you pull over somebody in a car, when you see a brown or black arm sticking out and you form all these opinions about them, they're being unjustly accused. Oh, I did it because, no, stop. What you saw was a brown arm and you pulled them over. So they have to get that awareness and they, they began to do that. Um, also with California District Attorney Association, Jackie Lacey, who I told you about, she and I were the founding members of the diversity program there. Why? For exactly the reason you talked about, Josh. We wanted to make sure the district attorney's office is starting to look like the public that they serve and the people that they serve. And I've been successful in doing that. I've hired more women and more people of color. Um, and then you say, well, okay, but are those secretaries, you know, are they receptionists? What are they? The answer is yes, it's the secretaries, it's the receptionists, it's the victim witness people, and it's the people at the top. I have seven executives. Um, the majority of the executives are women. I have somebody who's black and Egyptian at the very top, and a woman who's Puerto Rican at the very top. And when you look at who's running your DA's office and who the executives are, you see women and you see people of color. And I gotta tell you, Josh, very honestly, I didn't choose them because they're women or people of color. They were the best people for the job, but my heart and my head were open to, I really want this community to see who's there. Then on a personal level, and I took this very personally, I began to mentor young women who are Latina and um, it's been an incredibly rewarding experience for me. One young woman was 16 when I met her. She was in, in a home where there was horrible domestic violence. I saw the light in her eye and I stayed close to her. I'm still close to her to this day. Her mom didn't speak English. Her mom was terribly hurt. And I kept encouraging her as did others to go to school. She went away to college. She'd email me in the middle of the night. I'm done with this. I'd email back. You're not, you're not. She finally graduated college. She came back and she said, yeah, I'm going to take a year off. And I said, you know, that makes sense for a lot of people, not you. You're driven. You want to make change in this community. Go to law school. And she said, really? I said, oh, yeah, you could do that. So I'm very proud to tell you she not only went to law school, she graduated law school, and she's a deputy district attorney. So I can't even do that without getting goosebumps. I had another Latina um, Girl, I got it when I, she, I, through CADA, Council on Alcoholism and Drug Abuse, I became a mentor when she was this adorable little eight-year-old munchkin. She's doing really well. She's a teenager and she wants to become a forensic pathologist to get involved with the criminal justice system. And then there've been a series of other stories like that. I felt there was one thing for me to do it as a leader. One thing is post, one thing is California District Attorney Association. Well, what skin in the game did I have? And these incredible young women are my skin in the game.
Yeah. Okay. Thank you. And that's, that's very well put. Let's talk about you. Let's transition a little bit. I don't mean uh, to put you on the spot here with those questions. About something but... else. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about you. Uh, obviously you look at you now and you sort of say, you know, well, yeah, she's the DA and, you know, she wants to, you know, prosecute the bad people and put them in, you know, jail and prevent and do all these things that district attorneys, you know, that want to do. You're obviously somebody who's a role model for a lot of people, you know, a lot of young women as well. Take me back, though, to the beginning. Joyce Studley, I mean, did you grow up thinking you wanted to do what you're doing or what are, what are some of the barriers and the challenges that you've had to overcome as a woman just trying to compete in this very male-dominated <laughs> criminal justice field. So tough. Uh, Josh, I got a little teary when you said I was a role model for yeah. women, I guess. Yeah. Um, that's super important to me and for you to think that. Thank you. Yeah. Um, no, I had very um, supportive parents. A particular, my mother was um, believed in me and my sister. She wasn't a terribly affectionate person. Um, but she believed that we were incredibly capable. And she felt she was of the belief that women were the superior gender, which was interesting to grow up with a mom who felt that way. Mm. My dad was quiet, <laughs> fabulous, but quiet. My mom, no, you two can be anything. Well, turns out when you have a mom who believes in you and when you, when you achieve something, she pushes and pushes and pushes. And your dad is this, I will love you just because you walked in the room. It's kind of a nice balance. And it worked out well for my sister and I. She became a doctor, a neurologist. Mm -hmm. And now she went into the field of education and she's written nine books and she travels around the world with her um, education. And I'm going to do a terrible thing. I'll simplify her philosophy, which is when people are happy, they are more likely to learn. Mm -hmm. That's my sister. Um, with me, my mom let me be the wild child that I was. And I experimented in so many different things. Josh, I went to seven colleges in three and a half years. Wow. So I began college with my buddies, graduated college with my buddies. But in between, I went to a million different colleges. The passion for child abuse started when I was 17 and in high school. And I kept that passion alive. But what field I settled down in? And eventually it was being um, a deputy district attorney. And I was shocked by the sexism that I saw in the courtroom, through my office, um, through everything I experienced. And it was the first time, because I had this mom who believed in me. It was the first time I ever saw that I was being treated differently. And it was from day one. One guy who applied for the job and didn't get it said, you know, the only reason you got hired, not me, is you're a girl. And the DA's office wants to bring in more girls. And I thought I'd gotten high because I was the most qualified person. But he broke my heart when he said that. I never forgot it. I, I can tell you where we were when I was told that. And then throughout, you know, um, various decisions that were made. I remember when male DAs um, were successful. It was like, hey, let's go out for a beer. I remember hearing, um, why don't you go home early tonight and cook dinner for your family? Uh, when I asked for a raise, hey, you got a husband, you don't need more money. I'm not, I'm not being paid the same as the other people. Well, but you got a family. And those were things I was supposed to just accept. And um, I remember once being in the police department, coming over to look at some photos and a sergeant there assuming that I was there to pick up paper. And he said, yeah, are you the secretary who picks up paper? And I said, 
um, no. And he goes, well, listen, while you're here, would you grab me a cup of coffee? And I said, I'm a deputy district attorney and I'm here to meet with the detective to talk about the case. When I was first elected, there are 58 counties. There were eight DAs who were women. Kamala Harris and I were two of those DAs. Mm -hmm. Now, more than half of the women, more than half of the district attorneys in California are women. So it was fighting. I remember once I was in court and I was being taunted by a bunch of male defense attorneys. And somebody said to me, pulled me over and said, hey, Dudley, um, you want the sharks to stop? You stop bleeding. You learn how to take and give hits. And I'll tell you, Josh, in those days, women didn't know how to take and give hits. I didn't know what that expression meant. And then I realized I got to I got to start taking and giving hits. Mm -hmm. And it was all new to me. And I think when that was something that I had to learn, whereas I think maybe men um, get that from an early stage. And somehow I was able to bring that plus my natural tendency to be a bridge builder and mother everybody to the office that I eventually was able to run. I said, I brought a bunch of women DAs together probably around six or seven years ago to my office. And I said, hey, is there still um, sexism in the court? To a person, they burst out laughing. They said, of course. And I said, well, give me examples. They told me, I said, so where do you go where there isn't sexism? And the answer was only in this office and only because it's being run by a woman. Mm-hmm. So that to me was shocking. I think things are getting better, but I think there is still all some of that left and there'll be less and less of that. I think that there was discrimination against people who were gender neutral. Their sexual preferences were different than other people's sexual preferences. We brought in all kinds of people in the DA's office to also eliminate that. One of the concerns I had when we st- was um, dealing with people, people who are transitioning, you know, I wasn't, I didn't know that my staff had enough information about what terms to use, how to approach it. So I had every member of the, um, all the lawyers and all the investigators watch tape where a transgender person spoke about that, because if we don't meet people where they are, if we're not there to help, if we're not, then we we're, we shouldn't be a district attorney's office. When you were, I don't know, 16, did you want to be an attorney? No, what, no, what, no, 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 no. What did you envision doing? Oh, this is, this. I haven't thought about this in so long, Josh. I remember, um, oh God, so funny you picked 16 because I remember what happened. This was the beginning of the women's lib movement. And I thought women's libbers were horrible. They were the worst people because they weren't embracing their womanhood. You know, I was... I was queen of the prom, Josh. I was cheerleader. It was like, what? No, no. And then I remember saying, my boyfriend is is going to be an architect. And I, because I just read Fountainhead and I'm going to be an architect's wife and he will build. And I honestly remember standing in front of my classroom saying this, he will build great buildings and I will proudly wash his dishes. (laughs) Who says that stuff? Uh-huh. And I wish I didn't remember saying it, but no, I had no, no idea I'd be a lawyer and no idea I'd ever be the DA and no idea that I would be consider myself, you know, law enforcement officials. When I was a teenager, you know, the term in New York where I was growing up was those weren't police officers, they were pigs. Mm. So, and that's what I grew up with. 
So I grew up with a lot of the same things that people in that high school, which you talked about 10 minutes ago, grew up with. Yeah. And then as I got to know law enforcement officers, obviously my opinion changed greatly. Yeah. Wow. Prom, prom queen. Is that what you said? Uh, Junior high prom queen. By the time I got to high school, I was a little bit of a hippie. I wouldn't, wasn't involved with proms, but <laughs> junior high prom queen. <laughs> and, and did I read, um, maybe it was in Tom's story that, at this stage of your life, as you're retiring, you want to look, you're looking toward new challenges, challenging yourself athletically stood out yeah. to me. What's that all about? Um, well, um, right now I'm 69. I'll be approaching 70. Uh, I'll be 70 on February 2nd, 2023. Mm-hmm. And um, the other day I was doing something and I felt weak, physically weak. And I realized I'd become weak. And I think that happens to people when they age. Whereas I thought I was invincible and young. So I started lifting weights and now I lift weights to get stronger. I've always been athletic, but I really want to push myself so I can be in the best shape I've ever been in my life when I'm 71. Mm -hmm. And when I leave office, January 3rd, 2023, I'm going to Colorado for two months to downhill ski. Mm -hmm. I've never had time or money in my life to downhill ski the way I want to. So over the next year, my legs and arms are going to get stronger and I'll be skiing every day. And then I'll be hiking mountains and riding bicycles. And that's a piece of these things that as a mother of four, as a working mother, as you know, as your wife knows, you, you don't have any time for you. And now I have four grandkids so I can drag them on my adventures and romp, but I'm, I'm not done with public service. Um, the work I'm going to do aside from getting in this great shape, is um, for a long time, for the last four years, I've been very focused on um, first responder mental health. Um, it happened, my, I was very alerted to this during the debris flow and the effect it was having on firefighters and cops. And I began to learn about it, travel. I started, went to Boston to meet with the Boston, um, Boston uh, police officers after the um, marathon. I went to New York City and met with the firefighters who had lived through the 9-11, and I began to understand um, post-traumatic stress injury and the effect it has on law enforcement, and a light bulb went off. If people are traumatized, law enforcement officers, firefighters, they can't bring their whole selves to the next investigation, to the next fire. So one of the best things I could do for public safety is to ensure the strength of their mental health. So now I'm working with At Ease, which offers mental health counseling and support first responders. I was with Mike McGrew yesterday um, working on this. So I'll continue doing that. I'm very concerned about the lack of leadership. I was yelling at my TV about two weeks ago because I was unhappy with national leadership. And I thought, okay, what am I going to do about that? So I contacted the law school and I said that I, well, I'll tell you an interesting, I wanted to do it at City College, but I heard creating a class at City College is very arduous, which doesn't mean I won't do it but the creating of any class in that system is difficult. Then I contacted the law school and I said, I want to teach leadership. I want people to understand what it takes to be a leader. And I want to pass on that. So I'll be doing that. And um, one of the most interesting and important bills that I've been hoping for and that did pass is the decertification of law enforcement officers. We're one of the few States that doesn't decertify. What does that mean? A police officer commits a terrible offense and quits before there's any kind of investigation. 
and then goes on to another part of our state and gets hired there. That chief calls up the other chief and says, hey, tell me about this guy. Well, because of HR laws, you can't. Mm-hmm. You can say he's no longer working here. So this bad cop gets picked up someplace else. What I always wanted to happen is they should be decertified. They should not be allowed to be a police officer anymore. That decertification law passed. And now post is going to be involved in that whole procedure of decertifying police officers. I want to continue to work with them to make that system work because we don't want to lose good cops to bad chiefs who have um, discriminated against them. And we don't want to keep bad cops after they've done something which should just make them permanently out of the field of law enforcement. So those are the kinds of things I plan on doing in retirement. (laughs) That sounds like uh, more than enough to do. That sounds like multiple full-time jobs. Um, Okay. Well, that's good to know. There's going to be a lot that you're going to be involved with, and we'll still be hearing a lot from you. Um, Before we wrap up, I want you to talk about John Savernock and why him, um, you know, the timing, um, just full transparency, you know, reporter, you know, I heard some people say, you know, she's handpicking her successor. She's doing it to the point where she's making it very easy for him to not have an opponent, a legitimate strong opponent. Um, so address that, but but mainly, can you talk about, um, you know, why him and why he's the he's the one to t- to take this job? I think I was very concerned about that too, Josh. Yeah. I thought, you know, I want to get this out there that I'm not um, I'm not seeking a fourth term as soon as I can. But here was the problem. I back to that from good to great quote, your organization is as good and strong as it is one year after. I had been working on succession planning. I thought John was the best person for the job, but I needed John to um, fully commit that he wanted to be the district attorney. I needed him to fill out all the papers to get everything in because truthfully, if he didn't, I would have um, gone for the fourth term, but he absolutely did. And he did it One of the great things about COVID was um, when I wasn't in the office, he was, he came in every day and I got to see how he ran the office. And I approached him and I said, you know, John, I'm thinking about uh, not running, but I'd like you to think about being the DA. So he thought about it and he came back with it and he said, absolutely, I'm in. By the, he said he was in, by the time he got the documents in, I wanted to get that information out immediately. So um, I wish it had been more time, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't. But am I handpicking my successor? Uh, No, the voters will figure out who they want. Do I think he should be my successor? Absolutely. I trust public safety and justice to John Savernock. I think he will do a great job. I think I owe it to our community because people who admire me for whatever reason are going to know, gee, Joyce, who do you think would be the best person for the job? So I didn't handpick him to be the successor, but I absolutely chose him because I think he'd be the best person for the job. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when, at the press conference, I wrote it down because I was so taken aback by what he said, but he was, he was asked about it. And he said, um, when he was asked about the difference between he and I and something like that, and he said, what Joyce Dudley really emphasizes is something I believe in that compassion, passion, love, and kindness are not contrary qualities to being a district attorney. In fact, they are and should be requirements. Josh, knowing me as long as you've known me, 
you know how that statement spoke to me because most district attorneys don't feel that way. And it's changing, but that is who he is and how he feels. And it's important for our community to know that. I think, and what I admire about John is his judgment, his work ethic, how hard he works, how smart he works, and that he's a people person, that people want to be in John's office discussing cases. So for, for those and those reasons, I think he'd be the best person to be the next law enforcement official. Okay. Well, thank you. I, I, this has been a real highlight week for me because I got to start the week um, you know, notwithstanding the circumstances around the world, but t- I got to start the week uh, listening to you talk at the Ukraine rally at the at the courthouse, and you shared that incredible story about you know your grandfather and what he did in order to, or what I should say, what your your great grandmother first did in terms of of being so selfless and courageous and wanting a better life for him and saying goodbye to him and then him coming and making it work, um, pushing a vendor cart at night, uh, starting to sew, being extraordinarily resourceful, such a story of immigrants and uh, you talking about how I should let you tell the story, <laughs> but it's touched me too, you know, so I kind of know it well and I wrote about it, but you know, you talking about how when your grandfather would tell the story, it was important because it was such a historic event, meaning you're never going to experience this Joyce again in your lifetime, but you should know your history. And then here we are here and um, we are experiencing it again in your lifetime. And you shared that story in front of you know, several hundred people at the courthouse. And it was a really great moment for, for, and you know, great. What I mean is like compelling and touching and vulnerable that you were able to share that and really make it seem real to a lot of people who, who uh, may not have been able to know that personal connection. And, you know, here we get to end the week with this conversation. So I really appreciate you taking the time and talking to me about, you know, these, these, these stories, your career, uh, where you're headed. That's super exciting that you're going to be doing a lot in this in this community. So I'll leave you with the last word, Joyce, but thank you so much for taking the time. Well, thank you for um, acknowledging my poppy. Yeah. Um, he, did, he did tell me, Josh, he did tell me this. It was history. He wanted me to know my history. He never would have imagined it was going to be my future. And here we are. One of the things I didn't tell you that I'd always intended to do, and now more than ever, my father's side of the family was in Poland and several of them um, died in Auschwitz. My mother's side of the family was the ones who escaped Kiev. It had always been my intention to, as Michelle Obama says, they go low, we go high. It had always been my intention when I finished to go to Poland and the Ukraine and volunteer at law schools to give guest lectures, just to go into that law school and tell them, in my opinion, the great parts of the criminal justice system in America, to inspire them to seek that, to understand the concept of not guilty until, you know, until proven. So someone is considered to be innocent until proven guilty in America. What a concept. So that was going to be my way of healing the injustices that happened to my family. And here we are. And what's incredibly sad is my dream to go to Ukraine and Poland is not possible now. 
I can't get into those countries and do that now. Hopefully I'll be able to do that when I finally do retire, but it's been a dream of mine, which was fueled by all this. But again, I see my poppy. I see him telling me exactly what you said. I tell you this so you'll understand your history. In a million years, he never imagined that this would in fact be my life, that I would seek to go in there to bring that connection to heal. And I'll do everything I can to get into those countries and do just that as soon as I can. Thanks a lot for sharing your story.